Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Today I'm speaking with Barbara Tversky. Barbara is an emeritus professor of psychology at Stanford University and professor of psychology at the Teachers College at Columbia University. She's also the president of the Association for Psychological Science, and she has published more than 200 scholarly articles about memory, spatial thinking, design, creativity, and she regularly speaks about embodied cognition at conferences. And she was married to one of the most famous and influential psychologists ever, Amos Tversky, who partnered with Danny Kahneman in all those studies of judgment under uncertainty, and he would have certainly won the Nobel Prize along with Danny had he lived. Anyway, Barbara and I talk about her new book, Mind in Motion, How Action Shapes Thought, and we talk about um, many topics in this vein. We talk about the, the evolution of mind prior to language and the way in which our sense of space and motion have governed our capacity for thinking. Uh, we talk about the importance of imitation and gesture, the sensory and motor homunculi in the brain, the information that's communicated by motion, the role of mirror neurons, the sense of direction, natural and unnatural categories, and the way in which our categorical thinking is derivative of our sense of space. We talk about cognitive trade-offs and other topics. And now, without further delay, I bring you Barbara Tversky. I am here with Barbara Tversky. Barbara, thanks for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. Thank you. So you have written a fascinating book. I, I think our conversation will be largely focused by your book. And the book is Mind in Motion, How Action Shapes Thought. But before we jump into the, the book itself, can you summarize what your intellectual history looks like? What have you focused on and, and uh, who have you been? Well, I won't go back to childhood. Let me start with graduate school in psychology. There's a long story before that. But when I entered cognitive psychology, and it was an exciting time, everything was open, brilliant people were around me, the language was king. And in many ways, it still is. And that came from many sources. It came from propositional thinking and philosophy. It came from Chomsky and language. And both of those areas were very much on everybody's mind, exciting us. It came from our own intuitions that somehow, when we're thinking, we're talking to ourselves. And even that, so that seemed wrong to me. There's so much thinking that isn't that. And how do those th thoughts come, and how do the words come? They just pop in our mouths. And there, it came from psychology, where people were showing that the length of a verbal description predicted your memory for the visual world. So all that struck me as incomplete. We have a huge memory for faces, most of us. We can remember faces that we haven't seen in years. We can't begin to describe them. Same with scenes. And if you think phylogenetically and brain-wise, space in one way or another, and it's multimodal, 
occupies half the cortex. Mm. It, it was around evolutionarily long before language came. So it struck me that, it, first of all, it must have its own logic that's different from language, and that, if anything, space served a foundation for language and thinking, not vice versa. So it's, mm. it's, that governed more or less what I was doing. At first, it was intuitive. Later, I realized it was pretty systematic, and that helped me carve future research. But it, it, in many ways, spatial thinking was marginalized because of the hegemony of language. So people thought it was maybe like music or like smell, some specialized interest, mm. but not central. What seems to have changed that, and now everybody's jumping into space, was the Nobel Prize in 2012 to O'Keefe and the Moshers for place cells and grid cells, which seemed to capture our spatial thinking. And then very recent research has shown that those same that play, cells in the hip, hippocampus don't just gather information from all over the cortex to code a place, but they also code events in time mm. and, they, and people, again, gathering multimodal information from the cortex, and that those place cells are mapped in a two-dimensional array on the grid cells. So the grid cells in rats map space, but in human beings, they seem to map conceptual relations, temporal relations social relations. So th that helps me argue that spatial thinking is the foundation of thought, mm. not the whole edifice, but the foundation. But that's taken a long time. Mm. Well, this is, this is fascinating. I, I, at first glance, I think we can easily argue about the primacy of space and movement through space because just just in evolutionary terms if you, if you can't move if you can't sense the environment around you and respond with any action in that space there's no basis to evolve intelligence or anything else intelligence only matters because you can do something with it that affects your survival a sense of space and the world and a capacity to move within it had to have come online very, very early, and you know, as we know, you know, f long before language does, the point you made about describing faces is fairly revelatory about the, with regard to the the impotence of of language compared to a memory for for in this case the visual object of a face, which we know is is represented uniquely in the brain. When you imagine trying to describe a person's face so that others could recognize it on the base of your linguistic description, apart from, you know, describing someone who has a, a huge scar or, you know, who's missing an eye or something. I mean, it's just, it's com a completely hopeless task. And yet, as you say, we instantly recognize faces out of among the thousands or tens of thousands we, we might recognize instantly. So, and I'm just going to kind of just feeding you more areas where we might go here. The other thing that occurs to me is that our sense of space is really the foundation of our ontology, our sense of what is real or what exists. When you think of the existence of something, you're really thinking of, a, of 
you know, by default, things in space, and then there, there are abstract ideas or abstract quantities that people, you know, for, you know, philosophers have wanted to argue for millennia now that have some existence, but because it's not obvious where they exist, that has always been somewhat inscrutable. So when you, when you think of the, uh, things like numbers, right? I mean, do, does the number seven exist? In what sense is the number seven an invention? In what sense is it a prior reality? Well, the impediment there to our thinking about this seems to be the question of where are the numbers? You know, without people, where would the numbers be? And you know, so, so I, I would I would add that that our sense of what is real and what what can be real is also anchored to this this prior sense of space. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> you've yeah. you've gone over a lot of what I tried to do in the book. And number is fascinating because animals, many animals, many species, every day there's something new or another new animal that can count or not really count, but estimate quite accurately. Mm. So animals without speech, without any complicated language like ours, can solve all kinds of fascinating problems that are very difficult to solve. Babies can do that. And all of that seems to be without language. So there are other ways of thinking that aren't language. And number seems to be tied very much, as you suggested, to space. Those of us who have number words, and not every language has number words, tend to line up numbers on a line. The spacing between numbers affects how we collect terms in algebra. If you look at the notation system that we now use, and there were many notation systems that preceded it that weren't as successful, the notation system depends on space. The most right-hand column are the, are the ones, and to the left of that are the tens, and to mm. the and left of that are the hundreds, and so forth. And that spatial way of arraying numbers becomes essential. To, to our thinking, and we do it without even realizing. That's one of the reasons why the Roman numerals screwed everybody up. There are many things you can't do well with Roman numerals. Right. <laughs> they use space in a complicated way, yeah. right, yeah. That, that didn't work. Right, exactly. So, right, space is underlying how we array things in the mind and how we then array them in the world. Our natural state of awareness of ourselves in the world presents the body as a kind of object in the world for us. You know, most people feel that they're, they're interior to the body in some ways, the subject, and that their, their body is out there among the other bodies, you know, and, and vulnerable to the, the impositions of the environment. How do you think about our sense of embodiment? So is that, I've got five different tracks running mm -hmm. in my mind. I'll see if I can keep them and organize them. First, I avoided that term because it's used so differently by different thinkers and because it's become a buzzword, and I always worry about buzzwords. Mm -hmm. They're first celebrated and then vilified, as any fad is, so I worried about that. And I thought if I brought it up in a in a book meant for the general public, I'd have to go through all that philosophy and what did Andy Clark mean? What did David Kirsch mean? What did Larry Bob? 
And I didn't want to do that. Right. But I do think I've shown many phenomena where the body is involved in thinking. Certainly the mirror neuron system that we, we internalize. Facial expressions that we see, we internalize actions that we see in our own motor system. And often that gets expressed in squiggling, in moving the body in one way. We also imitate, and that is a way of thinking, and it's a way of remembering, and it's a way of understanding. So that's one component of embodiment. Another that I've looked at and other people have looked at is gesture. And there were re-externalizing internal thoughts by setting up some sort of spatial motor, spatial motor representation of whatever it is we're thinking about. So if you ask someone for directions, they'll almost inevitably use their arms mm -hmm. and their head to indicate how you should move. And often those gestures say more than the words do. The words are more brutal. People can't necessarily express that information well in words. They forget turns and so forth. So you want to watch the, the gestures. And usually we do, even implicitly. We somehow pick them up without conscious awareness that we're looking at them or when we're making them that we make them. So those gestures can serve your thinking. They can also serve my own. Mm. So if you sit on your hands and try to describe a route, a complicated route to somebody else, you're probably going to have trouble doing it. And we brought that phenomenon into the laboratory. We had, and I wish I could show you the videos because they're quite fascinating. We asked people, we put people alone in a room. They were reading complicated descriptions of space, locating eight or nine landmarks in and an array. And either you're walking through it, and this is on your right, and that's on your left, and now turn right, and now you see that sort of route description or a north-south-east-west description. So people had to read these. They're hard. We were going to test them. And while they're doing it, 70% of our subjects, of our participants, are staring at the screen, and their hands are essentially sketching a map. Mm -hmm. So that's an abstraction, right? It's yeah. lines, lines for paths and, and points they stamp on the table for places. People do it quite differently, though the lines and dots are pretty similar. We've done the same for explanations of mechanical systems, like how a car brake works. And again, people are reading it. They're enacting it with their body, often in huge gestures, sometimes smaller. People, again, do it differently. And when we tell people to sit on their hands while they're reading, they perform worse on the tests. Mm. So it, it's not, it's 70%, it's not everybody, but a good portion of people spontaneously gesture. They're not looking at their hands. So somehow that representation, that encoding is spatial motor. It isn't visual. And again, if they do it, they're better. 
blind yeah. children gesture. Yeah, that's fascinating. And again, that's not our research, but again, it's, and they can't know that their gestures are communicating something to you or they're unlikely to at four years old. So it, it seems to be helping their own thinking. And that feels like a mystery to me, that those actions of the body that are actually abstractions are helping you comprehend and remember. And when you watch these people gesturing, you get the feeling, first of all, you see them thinking, and that's exciting, mm -hmm. but you get the feeling that the gestures are translating the words into thought. Yeah, no, I, I can feel that internally sometimes when I speak, that gesturing is helping me complete a thought, and that if I were prevented from gesturing, it would be a kind of impediment. Right, yeah. right, right. So, but words, too, I'm happy with. I use them a lot, mm -hmm. <laughs> and I rather like them. But if you look at our language, it's, again, expressing actions on thought. We raise our ideas, we put them forth, we tear them apart. These are all ways we talk about objects. So we're thinking of ideas as objects and acting on them. Lakoff and Johnson went through many of these metaphors, and Talmy and other people before him, or before them. But there almost isn't another way of talking about thought, mm. except as actions on objects. Well, so the, the role of action and the and the ways in which we represent it and and the body that can can perform it so much of this is counterintuitive and and unconscious and, and some of it's in principle unconscious some of it i think we can become conscious of or, or we can become conscious of some of the some of the related facts i mean so i'm thinking of things like the the sensory and motor homunculi in the brain which is the, the strange proportions with which various parts of the body are represented and and tied to action. I mean, so for instance, we we have a much most people will have seen this from a a psychology textbook. This is something you talk about in your book as well. But you know, we have much larger areas of neural real estate devoted to representing the the hands and the lips than the you know the feet, you know, or the the shoulders. And so that that the fact that those areas are are so much better mapped is is tied to the fact that we 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 do much more with 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 our hands and lips than than other parts of our body and we and we we derive much more information we can we can act on the world which with much more precision and yet it's not you know looking internally you don't you you can't necessarily sense that your your sense of your body is is warped in that way and 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 people are surprised you know, when you can perform this experiment on yourself and see just how different your, your two-point discrimination is. You know, if someone puts, you know, two pencil tips on the palm of your hand, you can differentiate that, that it's two with those pencil points very close to one another. But if, you, if they do that on your back, you know, you, you, it's, it feels like one point even when there's something like, you know, I, I forget, an inch or a half an inch between pencil points. So it's, it's not necessarily intuitive and, and available for direct inspection. And so too with things like 
I mean, you, you mentioned mirror neurons, and, and I mean, these, these are these are neurons in the brain that that uh, were discovered by Rizzolatti's group, and and actually one of my advisors at, at UCLA did work, Marco Iacoboni, on this topic, and you know, much has been made of mirror neurons, and, and perhaps too much has been made of them, but they're the regions of the brain, and and, and now more than one, which respond to the actions of others, and, and certainly a case can be made that we understand the actions of others, both their their intent, intentions and goals, by mapping them back onto our own bodies, you know, essentially moving in our imaginations as we, as we see other people move. And I think, I think this is something you say in your book. I mean, we, we can notice this in the difference between the way experts will watch certain kinds of, of behavior. I mean, if you're an expert in yoga or ballet or some sport, your brain will show a different response to the movements of, a, of another expert performing those disciplines than a naive brain will, because you know what it's like to move in that way. And, and I, I think many of us can appreciate this in, internally from watching sports, where it's different watching a sport that you've spent a lot of time playing yourself because you, you really you you know it from the inside, and 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 it's it's just amazing to see the best people in the world perform that sport because you can sort of emulate what they're doing in your imagination, but then they they exceed what you what you've ever done. So I, I guess I you know I, I just deluged you with a lot of of your own information, but I guess you know I want to hear whatever you have to say about what's available to consciousness here for us in in how we represent the body and the, and the bodies of others and and our actions and the actions of others. So I'll start backward. Well, no, I'll go back to the beginning. You, mm-hmm. You've summarized a lot of things that I wanted to say and things that I've learned since then and frustrate me because mm-hmm. I would want to add them. So going back to the, to the homunculus map, which is exaggerated, as you say, and we did find that recognizing other parts of other bodies is often more tied to their neural size than it is to their actual size. So, and those were studies done long ago. If you look at children's drawings all over the world, they tend to be these tadpole drawings that are heads, Mm -hmm. big heads, and arms sticking out and legs sticking out and the rest, those, and feet and hands, often lots of fingers. And these, again, seem to be how children think of the body, even though what they're seeing is very different. So I Mm. think some of that is coming out nicely, that a child is drawing what they think, and they think of their body as the the really big moving parts and functional parts, and, and not so much the actual sizes. And I get frustrated when parents want drawings to be, or teachers, to be more realistic. I mean, there's something to learn from drawing realistic things, but I also appreciate the expressiveness of drawing what you think, and Mm. certainly modern art is full of that, and charming and frightening, and I mean, those kinds of abstractions that, that are always fascinating. So that's bodies. One research project that I admire, and this is related to the mirror system is work of Maggie Schifrau and her colleagues. And she brought, so there are these point light demonstrations. You take somebody in a lab, dress them all in black, 
put lights at their joints Mm -hmm. and ask them to jump, play ping pong, dance, do all sorts of different things. When observers see those light arrays statically, they make no sense at all. You hardly even know it's a body. But when they move, as they naturally move, you can see it's a man, it's a woman. You can see if somebody's happy. You can see if somebody's heavy. You can pick all that up from these lights, and there are fewer than 10 of them scattered at the joints. You pick up all that information, and you pick it up quickly, again, implicitly. And it helps small women like me walking dark streets at night to pick up somebody else's movement quickly so I know if I'm in, in danger in some way or not. Mm. So those, those skills we need quite quickly. What Shafrar and her colleagues did was bring in pairs of people, friends, and have them do these different videos and bring them back three months later and watch those videos. And they were watching videos of themselves of their friend, and of a stranger who was part of another couple. And their task was to identify what the people were doing, playing ping pong or dancing, and that they did pretty well. But they were also asked, who is it? And naturally, not surprisingly, they were better at identifying their friends than perfect strangers but they were best at identifying themselves. That's actually kind of counterintuitive because you, you spend less time actually seeing your own, certainly your, your, your gross body movements. I mean, you don't actually see your leg movements very much or your body moving through space. So that's, that's kind of surprising. I agree. It's surprising. And you, you, so, so what's the theory? And th- there isn't a better theory than, than mirror, that you watch that movement, you implicitly map it onto your own body and the way your body moves, and it feels right. Yeah. It's like trying on a, a piece of clothing and it fits. And here it's trying on a pattern of motion, and it fits. It feels like me. So that... That is, I think, counterintuitive, as you say, and, and quite surprising and relates certainly to the work that was done later on recognizing an motor activation when you're watching something that you're expert in. The classic experiment was comparing caparea dancers with ballet dancers. Hmm. And For both observers, both kinds of observers, watching either kind of dance did arouse the motor cortex, but the dance you knew aroused more. And that gets into your observations about athletics. And here, again, it's it's split-second inferencing that we're doing, nonverbal. There's no way in a fast-moving basketball game that you can figure out what your team is doing, what the other team is doing, what they're going to do, who's faking me, right? How do I fake? I mean, the levels of complexity that are required for those sports are extraordinary. Mm. And and again, split second, of course, they depend on expertise and practice and so forth. But none of that is, it's much too fast for words. It, it just couldn't happen otherwise. So 
yeah. that the athletics. So one more thing on the inferencing. This is work of a of a talented group in Genoa in Italy, and I worked with them a little bit. But they did the major part of the work. They can show videos of an arm reaching for a bottle, and they truncate the video before your hand even touches the bottle. But you can tell from watching those truncated videos whether the person about to grasp the bottle is going to drink from it, is going to pour, or is going to give it to you. Hmm. And you know that before the hand gets there. So those intentions of other bodies, even normal people are reading very quickly. It turns out, and this, again, I, I learned later, that children on the spectrum have a harder time with that. Mm, yeah, without yeah. Den- and, and they also have a harder time making the movements. Yeah, and as, as you know, mirror neurons have been implicated in, in autism, you know, exactly. spectrum deficits, yeah. Exactly, and in exactly that way. And to think that it's a motor action deficit that underlies this very deep and disorder that seems to have huge implications for people's lives is fascinating, right? Yeah. That it's a motor. And again, coming back to motor, it turns out that for people who are aging, and I belong in that category, moving is, is and moving in space is more essential to preserving cognitive function than doing crossword puzzles. Mm, nice. Right? That motion, again, is, is, is not just important for our immediate survival, but for our cognitive facilities, and certainly for emotional and, and social and just about every aspect of our lives. Yeah, I want to bring you back to, to sports for a second, because you referenced a study that I hadn't heard of related to this gesture study you, you um, just described with, with videos of reaching behavior. There was a video study of basketball players shooting free throws where they, w- they would stop the video, you know, before the, the ball reaches the basket at, you know, at various distances from the basket. And it showed that basketball players were better than coaches and fans and you know, sports journalists at predicting which free throws would make it into the basket. So you have kind of an expert audience, but still the, the basketball players themselves were better at, at making these predictions based on the, the visual cues. It, it, right. It's probably being mapped in one way or another on their own body, and they've had enough practice. People talk about basketball players as being free-throw machines that they can sense whether it's going to make it or not. I mean, I, that study I don't think has been done, but it would be nice to do. What about sense of direction? I'm always, <laughs> I, mean, I think we're all, we're all we've all been enrolled in, in a vast psychological experiment where we systematically degrade our sense of direction and also our sense of map reading because we're now totally dependent on GPS. But um, some people, you know, famously have great senses of direction and some people have terrible ones. I can attest that my wife, Annika, has a sense of direction that's so bad, it's truly perverse. I mean, it's, it's actually, what's fascinating to me about her sense of direction is that it's reliably wrong. It's not just randomly wrong. It's just, it actually contains information. She, she wants to go more often than not in the wrong direction that is just diametrically 
opposite the direction we're supposed to be going in. And it's almost like she, she knows what the right direction is and then has to, has to flip it somehow to go, the, go in the wrong direction. Do you, uh, I don't remember if you touched sense of direction in the book, but... Well, indirectly, it, it, right. And the, again, there's a long answer there. And it's complicated. You can remember roots as, as procedures. You go down this street, turn right, turn left. You can have a more global map of the environment you're in, but you still have to place yourself in it. So mm. you have this overview perspective, and then you have this immediate surroundings perspective where you're placing yourself in it. And that's a trick that's hard, and harder for some people than for others. Russ Epstein at, at Penn has done beautiful work on, on the myriad components that it takes to navigate space and understand space. So there are levels of understanding space. And I have a suspicion that what your wife is doing is something that one of my kids and I sometimes do. And that's if you enter, a, if you go in a street or enter a store by turning left, when you get out, you turn left again. Mm. So then you're in the opposite direction. Right. As, as opposed to reversing the direction and turning right. So it's a kind of heuristic that, that is 90% or 180 off. And that might be what, what Annika's problem is. I have no idea. Yeah. My father was hopeless. He kept mm. getting us lost. And, and so it turns out that the, that ability to keep track of yourself in space is independent of other spatial abilities. And that's fascinating, too. The spatial abilities are a complex of things, and people have tried to make sense of them and interrelate them as some of it three-dimensional, some of it two-dimensional, is some of it imagining yourself moving, imagining an object moving. There are sensible ways of trying to make sense of the abilities, but they don't seem to make sense of the abilities. And navigation seems to be independent of these other spatial abilities. I want to also, I mean, going back to some of the threads that your, your question raised, the overview and the root view and perspective taking, because that's core, in many ways, core to our lives, taking other perspectives and taking other perspectives on the ground when I'm facing you and I have to explain something to you, and do I take your perspective or mine when I'm interpreting your behavior, or am I taking your perspective or mine, and then going above and getting a map of a territory. So we can think of those overview maps not just of a spatial array of places, but also of ideas. Mm. We said the grid cells map conceptual relations or social relations and, or political relations, and people can map their social networks, right? These are networks. They're points for people or ideas, and the lines between them are the relations between the people or between the ideas. And that's, again, like space. We navigate from place to place along paths. Yeah, I'm actually glad you raised that point about ideas, because that, that's fascinating. There's a, you, you, in your book, you discuss how categories can be presented to us as natural or 
again, kind of perverse. Actually, there's a there's a passage here that I think I'll read. I'll, uh, it's, it reminded me why I, I loved Borges, the uh, South American writer. So mm-hmm. we're, we're talking about the categories, and uh, this is a passage from Borges that you you uh, proffer as an example of of how not to n- not to do this. The following is a taxonomy of the animal kingdom. It has been attributed to an ancient Chinese encyclopedia entitled Celestial Emporium of Benevolent Knowledge. On those remote pages, it is written that animals are divided into A. Those that belong to the emperor. B. Embalmed ones. C. Those that are trained. D. Suckling pigs. E. Mermaids. F. Fabulous ones. G. Stray dogs. H. Those that are included in this classification. I. Those that tremble as if they were mad. J. Innumerable ones. K. Those that are drawn with a very fine camel's hair brush. And there's another one here. Those that resemble flies from a distance. And so what's funny about that is that it plays upon our, our intuition, which is, you know, we sort of grok this naturally, that it would be completely useless to organize things that way. And because, well, one, that, that list of different types of animals is infinite. I mean, you, you could expand it indefinitely. And we sort of get that. And, and, and your point is that we have a natural way of categorizing things. And um, you break it into the, the, the basic level, the superordinate level, and the subordinate level. And so the, the basic level would be a dog. The superordinate level would be an animal. You know, all dogs are animals. And the subordinate level level would be a cocker spaniel, say, so a specific type of dog. And you make the point that you know, we all learn the basic level first. And anyone who has kids, you know, knows this, that, you know, dogs are discriminated long before the, the general class of animals or the specific class of cocker spaniels. Perhaps draw the connection there to spatial thinking and, and the rest of what you've been talking about. Okay, let, let me first say that I swiped the, the quote from Eleanor Roche, who uh-huh. did the basic work on basic level categories, a beautiful research project, and shifting the narrative, the way we talked about categories from artificial ones like large red squares and small green triangles to categories that are meaningful in the world. And so her research is beautiful, and it was it, the basic subordinate and subordinate is her work. The contribution we made was showing that the basic level seems to be privileged, partly because the parts are organized in a way, and that the parts connect people's perception with function. So we can look at a banana and the peel is for taking off and we eat the inside or a chair. We can see that it has a seat and arms and a back and we, we connect those with a function. And this happens in particular at the basic level. So that was our contribution. Hmm. But her, the major contribution is, is hers and her research group. What's we need to categorize. You think of a baby, and a baby is, is having a hard time or it takes a lot of learning before the baby can distinguish objects from the background. The world of the baby is just a bunch of pixels, 
that keep changing and doesn't yet have meaning. So figuring out which things are objects, are figures, and what's background is, is a huge feat of the mind and, or of the brain. And the brain eventually ends up with places that, are, that do the computations, that let you see that this is a fruit or a vegetable or a piece of furniture, this is a scene, this is a body. And there are places in the brain, more than one usually, dedicated to doing the computations that are required to recognize those objects. So that's a huge amount of work for the brain, and babies are doing it very quickly and very early in the first months of life. So they'll recognize when a spoon is coming at them or a bottle is coming at them, and they'll cry when they're taken to their bedroom because they don't want to be taken. So they're picking up the scenes around them and, and so forth. Categories, again, are important. Think of me walking dark streets at night. I need to quickly recognize friends and foe and what's moving, what is it, and so forth, in order to plan my own behavior. If I had to recompute that every time, I wouldn't be able to act or move. So those Forming those basic categories and of action, of objects, of people, is crucial to our existence. It can get us into trouble when we miscategorize, because we can't help but doing it. And, you know, the classic example is mistaking a toy gun for a real gun and being defensive in a way that is tragic. But so categories have advantages and disadvantages, like almost anything. I think it's hard for people and hard for scientists to think about trade-offs. They're always looking for maximizing the one best thing, and it's, it's, everything has advantages and disadvantages, every cognitive act. It's easier for us to think in categories, which are conglomerations of features, than to think of continua, right. which are gradations. And we're not very good at, at thinking of the, the intricacies of continua on, on almost any, any dimension, going from probability. This is something that Phil Tetlack and his group keep emphasizing, that people think of things in terms of likely, unlikely, or unsure, and don't think of the whole range. And again, it's hard for us to deal with the whole range. It's much easier cognitively to just say, these are good people, these are bad people. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, that, that's, a, yeah, I was thinking that when you, you talked about kind of the rigidity of these categories or, or kind of the binary nature of it, some of the most consequential limitations of this thinking appears in, in this space of, of the social domain. I mean, to think of good people versus bad people or racist versus non-racists or liars versus truth-tellers. It's so inflexible to the complexities of, of what we're actually confronted with in, in terms of the, the continua of human behavior and character. You talk about these nine laws of cognition, and I thought we could just run through them, and uh, you really just you, you hit upon the first law already. The first law of cognition is there are no benefits without costs. So maybe perhaps we can just, I'll just run through them and, and you can 
give us whatever color you want want to uh, give us there. So uh, the, on this first one, one trade-off that comes to mind for me is the the trade-off between type one and type two errors, right? If you're if you're going to have any machinery or or active cognition or human institution that is going to be better and better tuned to find certain things in the world, certain problems. As you turn the dial right or left, you are going to you have this trade-off between false positives and false negatives. I don't know if there are any exceptions to this rule, but this seems to be generally the case. If you turn your detector up, you know, too high, you'll get a lot of false positives. You turn it too low, you you'll get fewer, but then you'll fail to detect things you you want to detect. What else do you think of in terms of there being no benefits without costs? Yeah, no, that would certainly be one of them. And there you you try to evaluate the costs of making those two types of errors, and people sometimes implicitly do, but or even explicitly when they're making marketing decisions or business mm. decisions or choices in life. What would I regret if I did this? And we don't always think through all those consequences, and I think that's a real problem everywhere is how to think through the temporal consequences of of any action that we might take because it gets more and more uncertain as we as we go up further into time there's also a spatial continuum that we often don't think about and here it's kind of perspective taking it's we want to know a landscape it's again going back to this idea of a map and how can we fill in that map and how can we take other perspectives? So perhaps even thinking of that is what are the spatial aspects of a decision and what are the temporal ones, the consequences, and what spatial would be the other possibilities is that small reminder could be a corrective when we're planning. Mm. And if we have the time, to plan, so that that could be a, a corrective. Yeah, the the trade-offs are everywhere. It's it's uh, in evolution. We're not maximizing. We're we're and we're not. We don't want to completely fit a niche because then the niche will change, and we have to adapt to another niche. So that's creating variability, mm-hmm. as right. And evolution does that, and learning does. Learning is another, I think, another one of those trade-offs. And in some ways, it trades off with creativity. Mm. So there are cases where I want to learn an A-B association, that whenever I'm speaking French, whenever I think of chair, I say chaise. And that, getting that association tight will, will let me speak French more fluently, and it'll help me learn historical facts and scientific facts. And we all, as school children, spend a lot of time of memorizing those associations from A to B so we could know history and know science and perform well on the test. But when we're trying to be creative, it's exactly those highly learned associations that we have to break. Yeah. So in in some ways, being creative is is a bit the antithesis of learning. So again, we have a trade-off. And somehow we want to be able to do both, and we can develop 
tricks or heuristics for learning and keeping that learning intact and, and systematic and mm. reliable. And we can also learn tricks for expanding our mind when we need to be innovative and creative and maybe taking this spatial view and the temporal view is our, our, our ways of doing that. Yeah, there's, a, there's another trade-off on the, the other side of learning, which is that, you know, we, we come into this world not knowing a whole hell of a lot. I mean, there are other species that know much more than we do. I mean, so we, we don't have much that's hard-coded, and that's because it seems that we've evolved this truly broad capacity to learn so that we can, we can flexibly adapt to our niche and our, and, our, and our social situation. So we come into this world just unable to walk, whereas, you know, a gazelle is born, essentially born running. The fact that we have this level of flexibility in certain circumstances makes us vulnerable. And uh, as you point out, creativity is breaking the, the pattern on the other side of learning. So, okay, so the second law of cognition, action molds perception. What do we mean by that? Again, I'm summarizing lots of research. And as a very science-oriented friend said to me yesterday, what do you mean by law? And I said, you're thinking of chemistry and physics, right? And of course she was. These cognitive laws aren't laws in that way, and they aren't laws in the sense of, of law, of the legal profession, that something terrible will happen to you, or you'll be fined or put in jail if you break them. They're meant to be ways of capturing generalities that, that are not always true, but very much true of capturing them. So I meant that by law. Yeah. And it, action molds perception, again, has been shown over and over again that our learning, our perceptual learning depends on acting in the world. So a classic experiment was done in the two centuries ago now by Stratton, putting prismatic glasses on people that up, turned the world upside down or shifted it by 60 degrees. So yeah. it's very disorienting at first. and Eventually, you adapt, but the only way you adapt is by moving in the world and by reaching for things and moving your body in the world, and then you adapt, and within a certain amount of time, days or weeks, you no longer are perceiving the world upside down with those glasses, but you're perceiving it as normal, so your perception has adapted to the action, but without the action, your perception wouldn't have adapted. Right. I actually knew a graduate student who did that experiment, and I think he wore the the glasses for a month, if I'm not mistaken, and that was uh, that seemed pretty painful. Yeah, yeah, right, right. No, it's it's sort of amazing how how and when the brain adapts. Pascal Leone did experiments on students at Harvard. They were volunteers, and they volunteered probably for a high sum of money to wear blindfolds mm -hmm. and essentially turn them into blind people. And what happened to them quite quickly in a matter of days and weeks was what happens to blind people, and that's the occipital lobe, which is usually used for vision, was taken over by touch. Yeah. No. Which is f fascinating, that kind of plasticity, that some of the same computations that are done 
for the visual world are done for the tactile world and that our, our sense of touch can partially replace our sense of vision. Are you familiar with the work of David Eagleman, who's trying to utilize the same property of the brain, but without, without limiting vision, he's just creating devices like a, like a vest people wear that takes in visual information, or he may have a, an acoustic one as well, but he, he's definitely done it with vision, where it uses touch receptors or touch effectors in the vest to kind of map visual data in addition to what people are seeing with their eyes as a way of kind of growing a, a new sense or an augmented sense of the, the environment based on haptics. Yeah, no, it's fascinating. And a lot of work is done to help blind people. Yeah. So use, apparently using the tongue, using a mm -hmm. camera, mapping space onto the tongue yeah. is, is one of the more effective ways. The, the vests in the back, it's unused real estate. But as you pointed out, the back isn't the discrimination on the back isn't very good. Yeah. So yes, people are being very creative in in trying to map different sensory systems on each other to either enhance or replace. Right. Right. No, it's exciting. Yeah. The exciting uses of technology, a lot of trial and error, and it's also a way of experiencing art and beauty. Mm. Yeah. Right. Okay, the third law of cognition, feeling comes first. So this, again, is work of, that is most associated with Bob Zions, and he showed people nonsense figures, sort of tangrams, blobby things made out of, or pointed things made out of, that were just black filled in. And he had people remember them and also react, how much did they like them? And he found that the liking really came first, that people, the more you saw the same figure, and these are not particularly beautiful figures, the more you saw a particular figure, the more you liked it. And your liking came before you recognized it. Mm. So you, you knew you liked it before you knew that that you'd seen it before. So it, our emotional reactions can come very quickly. You can think of all kinds of evolutionary reasons why that might come quickly. And the cognition, the, the awareness of having seen it before, and the recognition, explicit recognition, that you'd seen it before, it comes later. Now, he didn't try an implicit recognition task. Now, that might have shown that our implicit recognition comes just as fast as the emotion. But showing that separation was interesting, and later work has shown that some of the emotional pathways are different from the pathways that establish more stable visual representations. So it, in many ways, behavioral research comes before. It's not just the feelings come before recognition. Behavioral research is establishing the phenomena that later brain research can back up. Mm. But it's the phenomenon was demonstrated behaviorally. So that's yeah. going to apply in spades to faces and yeah. bring us back to the first law of when faces might arouse fear or might arouse beauty. and. 
and any kind of emotional response. So those things are going to tie together. Mm. The fourth law of cognition, the mind can override perception. So again, this is other people's work. And um, and I think one of the nicest experiments is an old one by Brunner and Potter. And they showed out-of-focus photographs of things in the world. They were unusual angles of things in the world. And one group was shown the photographs in more or less in, fo in focus and asked to say what they were. And the other group was shown them first out of focus, gradually brought into focus, and people were asked to guess all along. And the guessing interfered with the seeing. So that by the time the object was in full focus, they couldn't see what it was. Right. They were slower that, to that, recognize it based on right. having formed a, a theory in advance. I guess that's just, would you link that to confirmation bias in, in some way? or? Sure, it could be linked to confirmation bias. It could be linked to the way we interpret other people's behaviors. I mean, Dave Rosenhan's famous and maybe infamous study done in, in a psychiatric hospital where people faked an episode, got themselves admitted to the hospital, mm -hmm. and later tried to get themselves yeah. out. That was crazy work. Yeah, that was amazing. Right. And the psychiatrist apparently interpreted all their normal behavior as manifestations of whatever diagnosis they'd been given in the first place. Mm. So it, 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 that is an example of confirmation bias, that we're looking for supportive evidence. And even that sometimes makes sense. If I'm not mistaken, it, you're just, I forgot that work even existed, but that was hilarious and, and also depressing, the punchline of those studies. But I, I think I remember that they, they warned the hospital that they would be doing this, or perhaps there was a second study done after you know there were there were complaints about the the results of the first study that you know they they essentially ambushed these hospitals that I, I believe they actually warned them in advance and it still worked. My my memory could be somewhat confounded here, but you know my memory's not good of that either, and it's been years since I read it. But I think in order to ensure that these graduate students would eventually be released, because right. this was different times. Somebody in the hospital knew that it was happening. Right. I don't think the diagnosing psychiatrist knew that. Right. I, 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 do, yeah. I do think the study was done where the diagnosing psychiatrist said, this could never happen to us. This would never work in our hospital. And, they, and the researcher said, okay, just get ready. And, then, and, and they still were unable to detect some of the people who were sham, sham patients. But I'll have to look back and see. Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, I, I, I wouldn't be surprised. Again, confirmation bias is something, it's again one of those things that has benefits and costs. When we're trying to understand somebody's behavior and have hypothesis, we need to look for a little bit of confirmation to confirm what we're looking at. Now, that can get overused because we could be wrong and we right. have to be open to that. But Figuring out if somebody is about to attack us or, or not, we need to look for more than one piece of evidence that, that our hypothesis is true. And then if we're super rational, we'll reject it when we find inconsistent information. But right. people don't always do that. We tend to dismiss 
And that's been shown over and over again in social psychology that we tend to dismiss disconforming information, explain it away, and to keep the information that, that fits our hypothesis. Hmm. All right, the fifth law, cognition <laughs> mirrors perception. This, again, is many people have gone through that. I think one of the nicest examples is work that my husband and Annie Kahneman did years ago, and I think it's, it's what initially got them excited together. Amos had been working on certain errors in decision-making. Danny had been working on certain phenomena in perception, and they both saw that your current state was distorting everything, that your current state in perception, your level of adaptation, was influencing how you responded to other stimuli in, in a perceptual world. And your current state in an economic world was, again, the way you were looking at, at gains and losses. So the fact that this same phenomenon of your current state exaggerates those changes that are immediately around it, and your current state can change, that was true in perception, it was true in cognition. Hmm. So that is in one, I think, nice example. Another is the sort of hypothesis, the downsides of hypothesizing in the Brunner Potter experiment that coming up with a hypothesis distorts your perception and, and makes you blind to, mm. to certain information in the perceptual world. And we know that that happens in the social world, in the political world, in the scientific world. We're loath to give up our own theories and see things as fitting into them. So those same cognitive abstract hypotheses can be explained, show up in perceptual, in, in our own work on, on understanding how people understand space. So it turns out that people think that cities within a state are closer to each other than cities between states. Right, right. right. So yeah. we group them in that way. Yeah. And that same phenomenon happens with social groups. So we think that, that Democrats are more alike to each other than, and Republicans are more alike to each other than a particular Democrat and a particular Republican. And it's, again, a matter of categorization. And, and within category, Distinctions are, are ignored, and between category, distinctions are enlarged. It's something that happens in perception. It's something that happens in every form of cognition, social, political, theoretical, scientific. It's there all over, right? Yeah. The sixth law, spatial thinking is the foundation of abstract thought. We might have touched on this a, a bit already, but... Yeah, I think we did, just both that brain foundation, the language that we're using, we're, we're talking about ideas as if they were objects in space. Yeah. We, our minds go from idea to idea, the way we move from place to place. So that, I think that's, again, another phenomenon that, that seems to show up in many, in many forms. The seventh law of cognition, the mind fills in missing information. Our picture of the world, again, in perception is always incomplete. And 
for example, objects occlude other objects. And we fill that in. We connect the dots. We see, I'm looking now at a cup behind a Kleenex box. I, the whole cup isn't there, but I can imagine it there. Scott McLeod, someone whose work I love, Understanding Comics, and it's a book I recommend to anybody who wants to understand the way we make stories out of the world mm. and visual as well as verbal stories, how they work together and, and complementary, supplementary. And he talks about when you show images in comics, you might show somebody sitting behind a desk. You know they have legs, typically. So you're going to fill that in. Herb Clark, my colleague at Stanford, has shown over and over again in language that we're constantly making inferences and filling in our information is incomplete. And again, if we didn't do that, we'd be flummoxed by the world if we didn't constantly fill in information that's not there. The Eighth Law. When thought overflows the mind, the mind puts it in the world. So, right. And this, I think, is, if not distinctly human, it's, there seems to be a break. We're missing those links between the great apes and and us. We're gradually filling them in with, with skulls and bones, but we can't infer cognitive or aesthetic or social behavior from those things. And it's a mystery it will probably always be a mystery. Maybe not. I mean, I'd be, love to be around when it's solved. But we put thought in the world, and we've done it since antiquity. You can find tally bones from 70,000 years ago, or tallies on rocks or on bones. So there seems to be a need to put thought in the world. We do it in words, as I'm doing now. We do it in gestures. We do it in stuff that we put on the faces of cave walls or on stones. And I think what's interesting, looking back at those things, they've always fascinated me. The antiquities, I head for those in any museum, and I've dragged my kids to antiquities Mm -hmm. all over the world instead of resorts. It is what what ideas are people putting into the world? And one of them is space. Maps go way back in many forms. Time goes way back. Often time is indicated by events in time. So cave walls will have hunts on them and petroglyphs will have hunts on them. So space and time. Calendars don't go that far back, but go, go back. So it's, another, it's a more abstract way of representing time. People. Objects, bows and arrows, animals. So the things that are important to us and have dedicated real estate in the brain are are other things that we represent. And then rudimentary number. Not number the way we think of it, one, two, three, four, but tallies. Mm. And tallies, again, seem to be found all over the world in many places. And it's usually a one-to-one correspondence which all cultures seem, seem to have, even if they can't count. Right. So right. if they don't have number words, yeah, they can have tallies. Ta- yeah. Right. And tallies we use today. You go to a restaurant to get a reservation to see if there, there's a table. The person, the maitre d' will look at a map of tables and see which ones are unmarked. 
that's a kind of tally, and give you that table. So we're, we're using that kind of thinking, one-to-one tallies, and representing it in the world. So those are ancient representations, and we certainly do a great deal of that today with diagrams and maps and charts and sketches and, and visual narratives, and all of those have communicate ideas often more directly than, than the words do. Yeah. Okay, the ninth and final law of cognition. We organize, <laughs> we organize stuff in the world the way we organize stuff in the mind. Right. And, and that, I think, we just look around the world. And so much of the world now is designed. And it's, if you, we, we started out with categories in the mind. So we have vegetables and fruit, and within that, apples and bananas and carrots. And we have musical instruments, and, and we have clothing and furniture and so forth. Well, the world, we do the same thing in the world. Those categories are in our mind, but we have furniture stores and grocery stores, and within grocery stores, foods are categorized and some categorized. We have one-to-one correspondences in our minds, and we put them out in table settings, and we put them out in buildings. Every apartment has windows and a balcony, and doors and so forth, one-to-one correspondences, what's an apartment. So we have orders. We order our children by the order in which they were born. We order our students by the, when they finished, we we form orders, what we like, we order. So orders, I mean, kids are doing that. What's your favorite color? your favorite food. So we're ordering things all the time. And Mm. we order, in our minds, we put them in. Who's on top? Who's the best? We put that on our bookshelves. We order them. So all of these ways of themes, that's another, another biggie that's comparable in many ways to categories, that all the things we need to prepare a meal, they're going to be in the kitchen. The things we need to keep clean are going to be in the bathroom and so forth. So we've organized different kinds of things by the way we use them. And again, that goes out into the world. Movie theaters versus versus dance halls versus schools, there are themes that are organized around the things that are done, all the things that we need to get those things done, train stations. Mm. So we've, we've now... Our cave-dwelling nomadic ancestors didn't have that. They had minimal organizations. So the world that our children are experiencing, that we're experiencing, has so much information in it and so many abstractions, like one-to-one correspondences and repetitions and symmetries and categories. There's so much out there. The world is is telling us. Mm giving us so much abstract information because we put our mind into the world. So I go one step further than that. It didn't get into a law. We've not only designed the world, we've diagrammed it. So if you look at street systems, they tell us where buses can go, where bikes can go, where people can go, when to go, when to stop, how to turn, if you can turn. So if you look at it, 
It's all out there telling us how we can move, mm. guiding our movement, but also enabling our movement. So it's constraining our movement, enabling our movement, and so forth. But we've, we've essentially diagrammed the world. Well, if you could see my desktop, Barbara, you would know <laughs> that the, the ninth law of cognition breaks down catastrophically in certain cases. <laughs> well, we know messy desks lead to more ideas. Yeah, one hope. That's yet to be borne out in my case, but, but I, I'm still hoping. Okay, so finally, do you have advice for parents here? Is, this, is there anything that is actionable? I mean, because I, I think like m much of what we care about, spatial thinking is is trainable in some sense. And I mean, is there, it's just, and at one point I was actually surprised and, and gratified to see that you are, you're a big fan of comics and you think that it, they convey information in a way that is distinct enough from books that the, the fact that they're considered a a lower art form is not especially uh, productive when it comes time to to uh, get children to appreciate storytelling and temporal and spatial relationships. You seem like a big fan of comics. So what else should parents know about this? So even before that, I think we all wait for babies to talk and get all excited. And then when they're talking, everything sounds like ba. It could be banana, mm -hmm. could be bottle, could be bus. But it isn't a deep dive into their mind. But you can really see what they're thinking by watching them, by looking at their eyes, at their heads, what's attracting their attention. There's more that you can see. So I think there's a lot we can learn about how to look at babies and how to understand their minds before they talk. Sure, we can also enhance their cognition, and spatial thinking, I'm glad you brought that up, is one of them. It turns out that spatial thinking is important for STEM and now for STEM education, science, technology, engineering, and math, and our world is becoming more technological. Understanding those things is more and more important. Schools typically don't teach them. They teach reading, writing, arithmetic, but they don't teach understanding the world that's represented on a page or on a screen. And that can be fun. Giving kids maps and asking them to plot the route, as I used to do when, when I was taking my kids places. I said, one of you can sit in the front with a map mm -hmm. and give me road instructions, but you can't fall asleep. <laughs> and of course, they always did. So doing fun things like that, having kids construct them, having kids make diagrams. There's more and more movement, in fact, in art to have kids represent information in one way or another, not just draw houses and flowers and and cars and horses and the sorts of things kids are prone to drawing. So and I think that's useful for finding other ways to express ideas that can be abstractions and can communicate and express and reach people in many different ways. So I'm, I'm all for that. Language helps here. There are some studies done by colleagues at the University of Chicago, but other places, showing that if you call attention to spatial relations to small children, this is two, three, four, you can do it. Call attention to parallels, spatial parallels, to sizes, to movement. All of that calling attention in language helps advance 
the kids' understanding, helps them attend, is possible that it will help them to understand mathematical relations and other abstractions. So, yeah, and going to comics, you know, I'm not a universal fan of comics. <laughs> and yeah, there's some, some very dark comics. Actually, I, I walked into a comic book store and uh, my, my youngest daughter was getting into Batman and some of the associated characters. And I naively just grabbed a bunch of comics in that section, you know, related to those characters and brought them home. And they were, they were so inappropriate for a child of, uh, you know, really any age that it will go down in the annals of bad parenting. That the fact that I just handed these comics over, it was my older daughter who discovered that I had uh, invited her younger sister into the darkest dungeon of the adult imagination. By, by delivering right, the comics. No, right. No, there are, you know, like any fiction or nonfiction, there's good stuff and bad stuff, and stuff that will capture some kids and not others. Francoise Mouly, who's the cover editor of The New Yorker and used to be an underground comics editor, has developed a set of readers that are comics mm. for children from one on up. They're excellent. They're called Toon Books, and the content is appropriate. She brings in fine comic, comics artists and storytellers to do the, the drawings, and the drawings aren't illustrations. The story is really told in the visuals or the combination of the visuals and the words. And so those are safe, I think, and I've sent them to my own granddaughter's grandson, and they love them. Sometimes they're a little subversive, mischievous, mm. but but on the whole, they're they're safe. There are more and more good graphic novels for girls, boys. That again, the content is perfectly appropriate. I th I think what it does, what some of them do, and why I'm a bit of a fan is they draw attention to the visual world. They help kids learn to scrutinize the visuals and understand them to understand how posture expresses emotion and expresses action and how facial expressions do that, how people are interacting, how close are they, how far are they. Those sorts of visual spatial interactions that are happening amongst people, there are maps and diagrams in, in many comics. Dora has maps. Mm. And it, so it's helping kids understand those abstractions and see them as a normal part of life. So th that's one reason I'm, I'm in favor of comics for kids. It doesn't, there are words there too, so the kids have to read. And it turns out school teachers love them because they know that kids, it gets kids into reading. And I've seen that too. I mean, I hate to, anecdotes, the plural of anecdotes aren't data, but there are, and when you get to older people and kids and adults, it turns out that often, especially in explaining abstract ideas, that diagrams and charts and maps are more effective than descriptions of them. So it can tunes kids into integrating the visual world, the abstractions in the visual world, the spatial abstractions with language. So. Think about ordinary conversation. We can't see each other now, but if we could, again, the gestures would matter, the facial expressions would matter, 
all of that matters in, in real life interactions, in meetings. Who gets looked at is the next speaker. Mm. And people are aware of that and often aware of who they look at as an indication. So those subtle forms of social interaction that, again, are happening in that world can be expressed in comics, and kids can pick them up when someone, someone's looking away not seeing and someone else is seeing. So, again, the good graphic books capitalize on all of that. There, there are so many clever ways that they convey information through metaphors, through boxes inside boxes. It, it's just the, the art form, as mm. an art form, is, can be, not everything, but it can be extraordinary. Mm. Well, Barbara, I'm, I'm now uh, aware of your time. And so I just, I just one final question. You, you mentioned your late husband, Amos, at one point, And, you know, while I, uh, I really just wanted to talk to you about y- you and your work in this interview, it seems remiss not to ask you uh, at least one question about him, just because he had such an outside influence on psychology. And um, I never had the pleasure of meeting him. And I'm, I'm painfully aware now of the fact that I was at Stanford at a, a time where I, I might have met the two of you much earlier in life. So that was that's uh, cer- certainly a missed opportunity. But what was it about him that was so remarkable? Because it just he's one of these scientists who, in the stories that have been circulated about him, he achieved a kind of mythical status, and you get the sense that more or less everyone who came into his orbit professionally felt that they were then functioning very much in his shadow. And you know, I, you know, I even get the sense, frankly, that Danny felt that way. Uh, and, and Danny, as many people know, Danny Kahneman, who later went on to win the Nobel Prize for work that uh, he did jointly with, with Amos. And so, you know, Amos, had he lived, would, would have certainly won that same prize. What was so unusual about him? Oh, so much. The brilliance sparkled. The clarity of mind, the vision, the fun. Mm. He made everything fun. I mean, just terrific fun. The energy was there. And the fun was there, but the clarity of mind and the vision, not just on psychology and philosophy, but on politics. He'd been active in politics in Israel. And before he came to the States, as a, basically as a teenager, and, and you know, the friends in Israel would wait for him to come back from the States to give them the clarity on the, the political scene, the social scene. When we were graduate students, I remember walking, I mean, he was many years ahead of me, but walking home one night very late. He was 27, so almost done with his degree, which was late because of three years in the army. And he, you know, one of those dark nights when, in the years when you could still see stars and were walking home, and he described his vision for his career. He said, there are two fields. There's similarity, there's judgment, and you know, he's going to work on both of them. And he had a vision for how he was going to work on both those fields, and that's what he did. And he was right on picking the fields. He was right on how they would develop, on their, their centrality for 
thinking and for the implications in, in philosophy and politics, in, in policy and whatever, in economics. And he, he was right on on thinking that, and that was there when he was 27. Mm. So you had to fall in love with that. It was, I mean, I was already there, but that, and that served us throughout life. I mean, the decision to go back to Israel, the decision to leave Israel, his political acumen and prediction, he he just had that quick understanding and vision, almost prophetic. So we arrived in Israel. I'm someone who's never left the United States. I don't know a word of Hebrew. I'm in the middle of graduate school. I arrive in Israel. And five months later is the Six-Day War. And Emmis had been a paratrooper and a, an officer. And he said on May 22nd, when Nasser closed the Straits of Tehran, they're going to come and get me. And sure enough, at 10 o'clock at night, they came and got him. And the the city of Jerusalem was in a panic. They remembered the siege. And so he came home once or twice before the war started. And he said, not to worry. It's all air power. And he was right. So over and over again, he would say something like that, that was prophetic. So, yeah. And in addition, there was the fun. It just was fun. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Well, in, in some counterfactual world, I got to hang out with him, but um, in this one, um, at least I met you, and that, that was a, a, a great pleasure to, to meet you. you. You came to the event that Danny and I did in New York, and it's great to meet you. In, in, in my side, too, a joy. I point out rather often in these interviews that the conversation almost never exhausts what is interesting in the book. That, that's doubly true in, in the present case. We really There's, a, there's much more in your book about the psychology of space and action and and the linkage to more or less everything that makes us human cognitively. Thank you for your time, Barbara. Thank you. It was a pleasure. <laughs>